What is going on? Welcome to the show. It is, well, it's Friday. Happy Friday. Pete Callender here. News Talk 1110-993-WBT and uh, 704-570-1110-1800-WBT. 1-800-WBT. We're going to speak with the Speaker at 2, the Speaker of the House of North Carolina, not Nancy Pelosi. Tim Moore, uh, we'll talk with him at 2 o'clock. Um, also, we're going to go over some of the census numbers. Headline, Robinson County is a loser. Well, they, they lost population. They're like the biggest population loser in the state, so we'll go over some of that. But first, American negotiators are trying to extract assurances from the Taliban that they will not attack the U.S. Embassy in Kabul if the extremist group takes over the country's government and then ever wants to receive foreign aid. This is according to the New York Times. Which, I, I don't know, like I read that sentence and I'm thinking, you're asking, these are American negotiators trying to ex- extract assurances from what they call an extremist group, which by definition tells me, again, what do I know, but by definition it tells me, as an extremist group, I'm thinking not very open to negotiations, right? Like that is kind of the deal with being an extremist. There are no negotiations, right? It's like Israel trying to negotiate with the Palestinians and the Palestinian, uh, the PLO or the NPLA, whatever it's called now, right? Hamas, they're like their position is all of the Jews in Israel should die. There should be no Israel. And so like, well, what's the negotiation compromise there? Like what's the midway point? Oh, like, okay. Half of all the Jews. Is that what we do? Like, okay. Only half of Israel. No, they don't want any of it. Right. Extremism. It's not, um, it's not negotiable. It's one of the things I learned after nine 11, actually there was a professor. I want to say she was a, well, she was either from Davidson or from UNC. I forget her name. Um, and I apologize. I was not expecting to reference her. Uh, but I remember, uh, this presentation she gave talking about, uh, uh, terrorism and how there were three types of terrorists. And there are the, they call them the three C's. There are the crusaders, there are the criminals and there are the crazies. And the crazies are like the guy that sees a billboard and says, you know, go to Florida or escape to Florida or something like that. And and then he goes and hijacks a plane and he says, take me to Florida because I saw a billboard, right? He's crazy. Then you have, which I guess you can't say now again. I mean, think about how far we've come in 20 years. You're probably not even allowed to say crazies anymore. Then there was the, uh, the criminals. The criminals are like, hey, I'm going to hijack this plane and I am going to, you know, demand a whole bunch of money and the release of some of our prisoners or something, but I really want the money and take me to, you know, this other place and I will get away. And then there are the crusaders who believe that, right, they're doing this for some sort of higher calling, right? It's a religious type of a thing. And the main difference between the crusaders and then the other two types of terrorists is that those other two expect to live through it. They generally are trying to survive, whereas the crusader, not so much. Right? There's nothing you can offer them in this world because their riches, their rewards are in the afterlife, hence the crusader. So it's a different approach to trying to negotiate with somebody like that. And all of this, I guess, is based on a belief that the Taliban, sorry, Taliban, they are interested in becoming like part of the global community. there's this assumption that, well, if we're going to hold out legitimacy to them, like 
This is the way you can be legit, is after you run like a hot knife through butter through the entire Afghan government and military forces, then you will be legitimate if you don't get rid of our embassy and then we'll totally open up the tap and keep funding you. And by the way, just a heads up for me personally, screw that. Screw them. If you're going to you're going to take over this country, Taliban, like, good luck. Have at it. And if we catch you harboring any more terrorists, I think we just don't even we don't send any people in there next time. I mean, that's that's kind of my view, like the 20 years, 20 years, 2300 service members dead. A trillion plus spent trying to nation build the country. And I've seen the videos of the Afghan military just like speeding away, driving away through like the city. And like the other, it's really weird. Like you see all these military personnel and they're just like fleeing. And then you got these other guys. They're just like, you know, walking around the street, just like moseying down the sidewalk, (laughs) just, you know, shopping, whatever. Very bizarre video coming out of Afghanistan. But this negotiation effort is sort of a, you know, please, sir, uh, do not murder all of us Americans. And I don't know why an American would have uh, an accent like that. But, you know, please don't murder us all. And uh, please don't, you know, burn down our embassy or whatever. And if you don't, then we'll totally hook you up with some money afterwards. That's the deal. This effort is being led by Zalme Khalilzad. Khalilzad? Khalilzad? I think that's how he pronounces it. Anyway, the chief American envoy in talks with the Taliban seeks to stave off a full evacuation of the embassy. <laughs> Why? Like, seriously, what, so what, we're going to have one embassy in Afghanistan that is now completely run by the Taliban that's out there murdering people, blowing up televisions, forcing marriages, right, honor killings and all of that. Like, but, but we're going to keep an embassy there? To what purpose? What's the point of that? As a target? Um, The State Department announced it was sending home an unspecified number of the 1,400 Americans stationed at the embassy. Okay, so the State Department is not saying how many of the 1,400. I'm going to go out on a limb and say 1,400 of them. (laughs) All right, 1,400 of them. No, probably not. It's like 1,390 or something. Um, Ned Price described... uh, the, uh, the remaining people actually as a core diplomatic presence in Kabul. The embassy also urged Americans who were not working for the U.S. government to immediately leave Afghanistan on the first available flight. The Taliban's march has put embassies in Kabul on high alert for a surge of violence in coming months. Now, that's, that's optimistic. Months? Do you think it's going to take months? What did I hear today on the news Driving in, I heard it was like four embassies fell within the last like day or two. But no, no, I'm sure it'll take months yeah, for the Taliban to take back over. American diplomats are now trying to determine how soon they may need to fully evacuate the embassy should the Taliban prove to be more bent on destruction than detente. <laughs> yeah, again... Uh, Don't know much about this new version, the new generation of Taliban, but I'm betting destruction.
News Talk 1110-993-WBT. 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. So was Afghanistan worth it? Mission accomplished? Was it worth it? What do you think? 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. I've also got some photos here from Julianne Ropke, who is a journalist from Schlauberger, which I think is a Russian publication, or sorry, a German publication. He's got photos here. The Taliban not only seized approximately 100 U.S. Humvees and MRAPs at the Kunduz, Kunduz, Kunduz Airport, I think that's how they pronounce it, um, but also several U.S. Scan Eagle drones. Billions of U.S. taxpayer dollars going to Islamist extremists thanks to the administration's hasty withdrawal without a peace deal or follow-up mission. Why in tarnation, can I still say tarnation? It's not, okay. Why in tarnation did we not bomb that airfield with all of that equipment? Why don't we bomb it now? <laughs> right? I don't understand this. Why would you give them all of this stuff? Uh, Ryan. Hello, Ryan. Welcome to the show. What's going on? Oh, Pete, I'm so sick about this. Uh, all right. So the other day I actually called Brett Pete and I was so embarrassed. That um, well, yes, over. absolutely. It, it was terrible. Yeah, um, I'm sure. I mean, that's an insult uh, for him. Like, <laughs> no. <it's not. laughs> all right. That was funny. Help, help me with my logic here, Pete. All right. All right. So if the Taliban stayed in their caves, and remained a non-government entity within the borders of Afghanistan, fine. Um, but if, from what you just mentioned, if they take over the entire country, then they can get aid. So if they didn't take over the country, they wouldn't get any aid. And if they do take over the country, they get Are we incentivizing the Taliban to take over Afghanistan? I would submit, yes, we are. I think oh, that, yeah, my. I think the logic follows there. Oh, what is going? You know what? I I, 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 hate to say this. I, I really do because Trump is a narcissistic boob. I, I, I got it. <laughs> okay. But his ability to negotiate is to, to say that it's better. I mean, it would have to be better than window licking, knuckle dragging idiocy out of what we currently have and what the deep state has been doing for the last. I don't know. I mean, I'm. Mm, yeah, I'm, I don't we, know. I don't know how else to read this, except this is the desired outcome. I don't understand, because at some point, like, it cannot simply be incompetence. Like, I generally fall down on the side of incompetence, particularly when talking about government, right? Like, if you're trying to decide, is this malevolence or is it ignorance, I generally default to ignorance, because, like, that is... Just my experience, you see the way these you know large entities operate, and you get people that don't know anything, but they think they do. It's like a Dunning-Kruger experiment, and then yep. they're like, um, oh, yeah, I, I know what I'm doing, and then they don't, and they think they do, and they make it worse, and so it's ignorance. But at some point, like, this cannot be – there can't be this much ignorance, right? There cannot be this lack of foresight that anybody could see like, hey – we're going to pull all the troops out. Why don't we pull up all of our equipment, pull out all of our equipment? Like, why don't we do that? Well, if we can't, then we need to do like what they did in Vietnam, right, where they were pushing all the equipment into the water and stuff. Because you don't want the Taliban to, like, be handing out, you know, 
free MRAPs to every fighter that picks up a gun. Like, hey, you know, talk about a recruitment tool. Here you go. You get your free Humvee um, when you enlist. If you want to help take over a, a city, then you too can get a drone. It's like uh, it's like Roy Cooper with the uh, the vaccination lottery, right? I mean, like this is the incentive program. It's that's what it sounds like, at least to me. Exactly. When I was in the military, well, I had this thing around my neck called an ANCD. And if it got to the point where the enemy, you know, yeah. got to a place where they could recover the ANC, there was literally a self-destruct button on it that we could destroy it so the bad guys wouldn't get our tech, wouldn't get our gear. Yeah. And I, I just can't, you know, I'm, I'm going to leave you with this last question. I want you to consider this. I want all your listeners to consider this. Do you think, honestly, that the media in this country will hold the administration no. to account for what just happened? Yeah, no, no. No, and Ryan, to your uh, point, I appreciate the call. To your point, though, I had a buddy named Bob. He got out of the Marine Corps. This was years ago, and well, so probably like I don't know, thirteen, fourteen years ago. He got out of the uh, he got out of the Marine Corps, and uh, he was looking for work. And so I said, "Hey, uh, well, you know, we're looking for some help in the newsroom here at WBT. So I was like, why don't you come on in and you can do some, you know, some work in the radio station?" He's like, "Oh, that's great because I had you know experience in the Corps." working in like the uh, the radio station or what I forget what he said it wasn't it may have been I, I don't remember it may have been yeah it was in the radio station but I forget like what uh what the name of it was anyway so we I'm showing him around we bring him in I'm showing him around we get into this room I'm in right now and he starts looking around and he's like where's the gasoline and the hatchet <laughs> like what are you talking about and he's like well, yeah, every radio studio's got one just in case we get overrun. You need to bash the board in with the hatchet and set fire to the place on the way out because you don't want the enemy getting your comm system. What? How is this any different? All right, Dean, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm doing fine, Pete. Thanks for the chance. Certainly. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm a retired Green Beret. And during the, the Great Recession, I had to fall back on some, some Army skills, and I was a, a site supervisor for the security of the U.S. Embassy in Kabul. Oh, wow. For about three and a half years. Um, and that place, I mean, you just knew this was going to happen. You knew it was going to happen. Knowing how the four-year changing winds of the United States politics changes every four years and so you knew that this was going to happen it was just a matter of time so but i have can i, have I well, dean say, can i pick your brain a little bit more after the news sure all right can i put you on hold then and, and i'll bring you back sure all right great hang on a second let me get back to the uh, uh to the news center with mark muller and then we'll get back to dean News Talk 1110-993-WBT. If you hear the sounds of clinging and clanging in the background, that's Ron, the engineer, <laughs> who said I would not mention his name three times during the broadcast. And if I did, he would pay the producer, Ryan, I think it was $200. 20 Oh, 20 <laughs> Well, if I say it on air, it's like a contest. Then you have to pay out. Isn't that the deal? Ron is angry at me now. All righty, let me go to the phones here before Ron starts throwing stuff at me. Dean, thank you for hanging on. Dean, uh, you say you were a you are a retired Green Beret and you worked at the embassy, but you say you went over there. So probably what like oh nine time frame? No, it wasn't that bad. I was there so two thousand eleven. I was June two thousand eleven to January of two thousand fifteen. Okay, so how would that compare? You say it wasn't that bad, so. 
Well, how bad was it when you were over there? <laughs> so, so I was there for the Christmas morning where we received a rocket attack um, yeah. to the embassy grounds. The I was there not working, but I was there in Kabul when the actual attack occurred from a construction site about mm-hmm. a half a mile away. They were lobbing in RPG rounds and shooting and, and that type of stuff. The uh, I was not day-to-day walking the grounds, kicking in doors in Afghanistan out in the bush, mm-hmm. but uh, we rode the roads twice a day at, at, in our convoy to get to work and back and forth from where we were staying at the time. Mm. And it got so bad to where just as I was leaving, they started actually helicopter transfers for everybody that was going back to the States, rotating back and forth. They literally were using helicopters to pick people up out of the embassy grounds and drop them off over at the airport. They stopped us from driving on the roads. And so this is roughly then six years ago when you left. And so you say you knew at that point that things, and you say everybody kind of knew that that things were not going to go well. Everybody but the State Department who put hundreds of millions of dollars into new buildings and more presence, <laughs> more of a footprint on the embassy grounds. Why? <laughs> so I guess the, uh, I mean, I know, I know the answer to this question. Why would they do that? <laughs> that, that, that's beyond me. I, I won't comment to that effect. Um, everybody's hoping that the world thinks like us and I call it the, the cocktail the cocktail set, you know, mm-hmm. they have cocktails in Washington, D.C., New York City, and L.A., and they all think the rest of the world thinks like them, and they want everybody to get along happily and invite more of the LBGT people and, and that type of things into their community, and the locals just don't think the same way. So, well, it's funny you mentioned LGBT, because there was one of the stories I heard or read uh, out of Afghanistan was that like there's uh there was like sort of this culture of uh you know if you want a wife you find a woman but if you want pleasure you would go and find a young male to do that for that, you that that is part of their culture yeah. the built in part so, of their culture right and so but but um so this idea though that we try to make them into a freedom loving society right to appreciate this stuff and i acknowledge i admit i thought that could be done as well at the very beginning i thought you know, we're going to go in because when you saw like the conditions and the uh, uh, the oppression that people were living under, and it was like, oh, surely these folks. Because I remember I did an interview with a fellow. I still remember his name. Latif Shams was his name, and he was from Afghanistan. He was a businessman here in Charlotte, and um, he talked about how like Afghanistan was this. Uh, this great place at some point, and uh, and he talked about like Iran and the Lebanese women, and like how they, you know, they like he had all of these like ideas from you know decades prior, and how now everything had just kind of you know been circling the drain, <laughs> and um, and so he thought, and I guess maybe he convinced me at the time that like there were a lot of people that still would welcome us as liberators, and they did not, and they do not want what we were offering. It's all a power struggle. Every place you go, there's people in power that don't want to give up their power. Mm-hmm. The literacy rate of that country is like 38% of an, that would have an eighth grade level of education. Well, that's actually, high. I mean, was that, that's like comparable to Charlotte, isn't it? I mean, that's, <laughs> I kid, <but> really. <laughs> and so they're getting information from people who are in power, whether it's a religious 
position of power mm-hmm. or a warlord or that type of thing. And those guys just don't want to give that up. And they don't want to compete against women who are educated. And so, literally, they're mm-hmm. poisoning schools that we built for girls to go to school. That happened while I was in country. Um, just so people get a grasp of what's happening. I think we spent a billion dollars on a highway to go through that country. So people could get things out of their local fields and get it to a market to better their way of life. But in the wintertime, somebody discovered that the macadam used to pave the roads burned. And so every morning you'd go out and people were just chunking the highway pieces of it and taking it back to their dirt huts and burning it in their fireplaces to stay warm Mm -hmm. in the wintertime. And so until you live that and until you get that understanding, you really you, you can't compete with what's happening on the ground locally. Do you think that it was ever that this outcome was ever avoidable? Historically speaking, looking at all the armies that have gone in there, no. All right. So and so why uh, to shift here to the present? Why? Why are we leaving all of this material behind? Why, why are we letting them have Humvees and MRAPs and drones? Because of political quickness or just get out of there. You mm-hmm. have to be out of there. So nobody's thinking. Um, and they, they just were ordered out. And it's a shame. And it's just the stupidity. Yeah. Dean, thank you for the call. I appreciate it. Thank you for your service. Welcome home. And um, thanks for the insight. No problem. Thanks. All right. Yep. Take care. Uh, 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. Five current and former officials described the mood inside the embassy, according to the New York Times, as increasingly tense and worried. I wonder why. And diplomats at the State Department's headquarters in Washington noted a sense of depression at the specter of closing it nearly 20 years after the U.S. Marines reclaimed the burned-out building in December of 2001. That's the feeling you had depression at closing the embassy. That's the feeling that the State Department folks have. Okay, that's interesting. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Was the war in Afghanistan worth the cost? 704-570-1110 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. Let me go over here to Sam. Hello, Sam. Welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, how you doing, hey, guy? I'm good. How are you? Got a little bit of a hypothetical for you. Uh-huh. Right. Um, our pharmaceutical industry, in order to produce all their opioids, what's the primary ingredient they need? I would assume that you're going with the uh, the opium, the poppy fields in Afghanistan? Yeah, and let's face it, we haven't had a whole lot of luck over there with uh, guarding those poppy fields or uh, destroying them, I mean. And you need somebody over there that's going to maintain a good supply that someone isn't going to come in, the cartels, and take over those poppy fields and reduce our pharmaceuticals' supply of of opium. So you need someone in place that's going to, well correctly be able to guard and maintain, you know, control over the opium trade. So 
where are these people going to get all the military vehicles and all the all the infrastructure necessary to guard our pharmaceutical? I mean, the American public's interest on the opium trade. China. Well, <laughs> all those vehicles, all the armaments and drones and everything, uh-huh. I think the Taliban could probably keep pretty good control and tight rein over top of the. Oh yeah, it was like after the war, uh, the first war, the Persian Gulf War. When we let the um, the Iraqi government keep their gunships, right? Yeah. We let them keep all of that stuff, and then what did they do? They immediately used it to put down all of the insurrectionist activity, and you know to massacre all of these people and the Kurds and stuff. And it was like uh, General Schwarzkopf said it was like the biggest mistake uh, that America had made. And oh, we can always do better. That's true. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like I thought that was kind of a pessimistic view. Like we can always find a way. To leave a country worse, you know? Yeah. Do, do you remember when Tulsi Gabbard was running for uh, president back in, well, what, 2016? Yeah, I'm old enough to remember that, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So anyways, she brought out some interesting facts, and she was never called out on it because, well, she had the paperwork to prove it. Our Pentagon had paid for and had weapons, foreign weapons, delivered to ISIS in Syria. Oh, gosh. Uh, yeah, don't even, I mean, trying to make heads or tails of what's happening and has happened in Syria. I mean, good luck with that. It, it, and I, I suspect what we're going to see in Afghanistan is, is a very similar situation. We're going to start, oh. we're going to see the rise of al-Qaeda, the rise of ISIS, and there are oh, going to be all these better. factions, and then there's going to be like these different groups that are kind of less terroristy than the other groups. And so then uh, <laughs> you're going to have like, I guess, probably Lindsey Graham, because John McCain is no longer around to like, step up and be like, no, we need to fund these guys. They're totally legit. And then like, oh, look at that. They showed up in, you know, a snuff video beheading some journalists. Oh, well, you know, I- I'm sure we're going we're gonna to see a lot of that. Well, I'm hoping that with all the money they can make it over the opioid trade, that our pharmaceutical industry, I'm hoping maybe they'll be able to buy some of their own weapons, and where the taxpayers won't have to, you know, buy the weapons for them. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well. I mean, more than we've already bought for them. I mean, we did. Yeah. We're we're spotting them a bunch of vehicles and drones. So. Yeah, but it it costs a, it costs a lot to you know run a you know terrorist camp. I mean, just ask, <laughs> ask the CIA. Look what the CIA budget is. I mean. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. All right. I appreciate the call. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, terrorist training camps do not come cheap, right? They do not come cheap. Uh, I am, I will say, like, I am interested to see in a Gen X watch the world burn kind of way uh, what China does here. Because I read an article a couple of weeks ago about uh, China maybe, because they're like right there too. And so they may have some interest in, then you got like these Afghans that are like, yeah, yeah, bring it. Like we took out the Soviets, we took out America, we're going to take out China next. And I, you know, I don't know. I suspect like China, because I don't think they really care what the world says or thinks about them because they've bought everybody's silence on everything at this point. So I, I think that they would really be able to go in there and, well, I guess protect all of those poppy fields, right, according to Sam. That would be the... <laughs> Um. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just reading this email. It says, uh, Pete, love your show. I had contacted Senator Tillis. Okay, I'll have to read that later. That He got a response. I will read that. Um, Mike, I will read that. Um, Mr. Khalilzad, Khalilzad, Zalmay Khalilzad, he is the chief American envoy in talks with the Taliban, is hoping to convince Taliban leaders that the embassy must remain open and secure 
if the group hopes to receive American financial aid and other assistance as part of a future Afghan government. <laughs> so aside from all of the, the vehicles and drones, and so aside from all of that, if you guys want more stuff, you're going to have to not blow up our one building, okay? Just don't blow up our one building and murder all the people that are in this one building, this one place, just leave this one place because this is vital. If you leave this, you could do whatever you want in the rest of the country, right? You can do the the forced marriages, right? Yeah, you could do the gang raping and the murdering of girls who just simply want to get an education. They want to learn to read, like the honor killings, the beheadings, like all of that stuff. Keep doing what you're doing. That's totally fine. Just don't blow up our building. And then you'll be a good member in standing of the world community. Deal. The Taliban leadership has said that it wants to be seen as a legitimate steward of the country and is seeking relations with other global powers, including Russia and China. (laughs) Great. Well, yeah. Oh, thank goodness. Well, we should totally rely on Russia and China to vouch for the legitimacy of the Taliban government. Right. Because if you can't trust the Russians... And you can't trust the Chinese, really. Who can you trust in this global society? This is uh, a piece by Jonathan Rausch. He's a columnist at Persuasion and author of The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth. And he makes the case that the Afghanistan war was a partial success. That it was a partial success. So this is a little bit of a optimistic viewpoint here see i'm not a completely negative cynical person here like i'm trying to give you like this is a positive outlook here so just think of it this way you own stock in a company and the company goes bankrupt and you lose all of the money it's all gone right you would say oh my gosh what a mistake it's such a total failure okay but what if you had bought that stock 20 years ago and over the 20 years it had paid you dividends. You had made money off of this stock for 20 years, right? You had a disappointing ending to it, but would you say that was a total failure? Would you say that that was a mistake? He goes on to say that through this calculus, America is facing, this is the calculus he says America is facing in assessing its 20-year stabilization campaign in Afghanistan. Abruptly, though not entirely unexpectedly, the Biden administration is pulling out. And you're seeing a lot of headlines like The Economist uh, magazine says, you know, America's war in Afghanistan is ending in crushing defeat. I mean, is this is this a crushing defeat? I don't think this is a defeat. I think it is the defeat of an idea, this idea that um, we could nation build. Like this, this should put that idea to bed forever. Never again, never again should America ever try to do anything like this ever again, right? I think that idea has been defeated because the people of Afghanistan do not want the kind of society that we were trying to teach them to build. They didn't want it. So let's stop trying to do that. All right, news is coming up next, and uh, we'll take more of your phone calls. 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110 on News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT.
News Talk 1110-993, WBT Pete Callender here, and uh, this is a piece by Jonathan Rausch, a columnist at Persuasion and the author of The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth. He says, let's assume for argument's sake that the Taliban do retake power and resume their campaign to make Afghanistan medieval again. Make Afghanistan medieval again. <laughs> so it would be a mama. That would be the slogan, mama hats all over the place. Um, assume a refugee crisis too. Assume that that happens. We got people fleeing, right? Um, assume human rights violations and even resumption of terrorist activity. Yes, that would all be bad. And yes, historically and possibly American voters will not judge President Biden harshly for it, or they, or they would judge him harshly for it. But it would not have made the campaign a mistake or even on its own terms a failure, he says. To the contrary, even assuming the worst, the operation should be considered at least a partial success and well worth the effort, flawed and limited to be sure, but better than the alternatives and far from a strategic or moral catastrophe. Far from a strategic or moral catastrophe. Um, I don't think moral catastrophe, except for the part about how we don't seem to be interested in getting our uh, translators and stuff to get these people out of the country, like people that helped us and worked with us that now need to flee because they're going to be murdered for working with us. Like all of those people need to be like, if we can just like, I don't know, transport them to the Southern border or something and then let them walk across. That, <laughs> that Maybe that would allow them to get here quicker. They need to be taken care of. They need to be protected. They need to be saved. We need to save those people that, want out because they are now going to die because they helped us. Um, if we don't do that, then yes, a moral catastrophe. But I would not say that our effort there to, quote, nation build, I don't think that that was a moral catastrophe because we tried to do right by them as we thought right would be, and they don't want it. They don't want it. As Dean talked about earlier, like they built this massive highway and then people started ripping it up so they could fuel their stoves. Right? There's just now maybe we should have given them more fuel or whatever. Like I don't know how you save people that don't want to be saved, right? That's that's sort of the rule number one in in all like self-improvement stuff. <laughs> you have to be interested and willing to make the changes yourself. You've got to hit the rock bottom. You gotta have your moment of clarity, your desire to change. So he says, though, that uh, that this would be far from a strategic catastrophe. OK, why is that? Well, he says here to begin with, the financial cost is like, you know, one to two trillion dollars. That is substantial. But over 20 years, he says it's quite sustainable, actually. So, I mean, yes, it was expensive, but it wasn't that expensive if you divide it out over the course of the decade. And that is a take, I guess. Right. That. We have all of this extra money <laughs> that we could spend on it. This, by, I remember having these debates 20 years ago and having these discussions with people. And it's like, and, I, and the one line, and it's, it still rings true now, and it is the case in Iraq. It's the case in Afghanistan. It was the case, I think, in Vietnam, right? This idea that we don't fight wars to win them anymore. We fight with hands with a hand tied behind our back. 
because the war war is like the complete breakdown of society, right? And yes, there are rules of war and rules of engagement and all of that, but there comes a point where, like I asked about, like you've got all of this, you got this airport, you got all these Humvees and MRAPs and drones that are all on the airport tarmac, and now all of the Taliban, they've all got, you know, access to all of this stuff. They've got this, they've got the vehicles, they've got the drones, they they are in possession of them now. Why would we not just go and carpet bomb the bejeebus out of the entire area? Just obliterate it. Would that be against, like, rules of engagement or something? Right? We don't, oh, we would lose moral standing or something for that? I I, I don't know. I don't know, because you, you got a bunch of bad decisions, and it seems like you should pick one of them and then just, you know, say, look, I had bad, I had bad choices, bad options. Those are, those are the options. Do we leave them with all of this equipment or do we eliminate all of the equipment? And yes, kill a whole bunch of people in the process who, by the way, once they get all of this equipment are going to use it to kill a whole bunch of people too. Well, Pete, if you bomb that tarmac and you blow up all of the equipment and kill all of the people, now you'll be making enemies and then they will want to come here and kill us because they weren't interested in doing that before we blew up the tarmac. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to understand why these decisions are getting made. And it doesn't seem like the people who made the decisions have a very convincing argument (laughs) or explanation, shall we say. Um, Is this another Dean? Is this Dean number two? Hello, Dean number two. Welcome to the show. Hi, Pete. Hey. Yeah, I was wondering, is it is it really a war, or is it that we're trying to implement a cultural change? Because it seems like if we'd have done this 10 years ago, or now, or 10 years from now, that the, you know, it'd still be very tribal. Yeah. No, yeah, I agree. I think um, at the time when, when this... When we first invaded, and one of the problems we noticed was, like, you can't really, like, bomb them back to the Stone Age because they're already in the Stone Age, right? Mm-hmm. So we were trying to, like, okay, here's how, like, you can have a better society. And we thought, like, we can do this. We can help them build their nation. And then they wouldn't be harboring all the terrorists, right? Like, that was the idea. That was the point of it all. And that has obviously not proven out now i guess maybe it is a quote success in in the sense that now we know that that kind of a course should not ever be taken again well maybe they know too i mean you know how can how can anyone change unless they're exposed to it i mean if if all you ever know all your life is the 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 tribal massacres and everything else then you'll never know there's a better life and you'll never strive for it Mm mm-hmm I, I, I just, you know, I mean, it's like if all I did was listen to some other radio station and I never knew you guys were out there, uh, you know, I'd go my whole life never knowing yeah. how good you are. Right, unless you saw some outside advertising. <laughs> all right, Dean, I, no, I appreciate the call. Thank you, Dean. <laughs> no, it's true. How do you know what you don't know, right? The fish doesn't know it's wet, right? That's the concept. And I get that, but after 20 years, like maybe like the idea was people would now have an idea. They would have something else to judge against, like to say, okay, this is what I used to live under, and that was pretty terrible compared to what I have now. 
Apparently, though, it didn't take. <laughs> it just didn't take. Uh, sometimes, like uh, driver's ed, sometimes it just doesn't take, and you end up with accidents and stupidity on the roadways. Uh, roadways, but that means Boomer Von Cannon stays employed <laughs> because he now can tell us all of the yeah. uh, all of the stupidity on the roadways. <gasps> I've always disagreed with this song, by the way. Because it is good for some stuff. It does, like, if you are looking to kill a bunch of people, blow up a bunch of buildings and stuff, fund a bunch of, um, you know, defense contractors and stuff like that, then war definitely does it. And people are like, war never settles anything. No, it, war can actually settle a good bit of things. Like, if you wipe out... Your opponent, you're not going to hear from them anymore. Like that, that is going to settle that problem. I mean, it may raise other issues. There may be some unintended impacts and ramifications after the fact, but um, it does settle the initial issue. They go away. You get the land or whatever. All right. News Talk 1110 wbt 704 and uh, 1-800-WBT-1110, do you think the war in Afghanistan, now 20 years later, do you think it was worth it? Um, let me go over here to Joe. Hello, Joe. Welcome to the show, Joe. How are you? Hey, Pete. Hey, Pete, I'm on board with you. Here's my take. The problem with war is you've you got to be fair. The problem with war is innocent collateral damage. Mm-hmm. When we bombed Berlin... We didn't care about innocent collateral damage. When we bombed Nagasaki and Hiroshima, we didn't care about innocent collateral damage. Well, now, well, hang, hang on, Joe. We did care a little bit. We did care a little bit, right? Because we dropped flyers on Hiroshima, Nagasaki, right? We we dropped flyers telling people this was coming, get out of here, right? We did warn people that this was coming. So we did but, care a little bit, but at the end. Well, we followed through on the threat. And what was the resort of both of those bombings? Well, the first one. Right. Well, the first one murdered, I mean, murdered a lot of people, right? Killed a lot of people. And then the, the second, and then it made Japan think like, oh my gosh, this is awful. And then when the second one was dropped, then it was like, okay, this is unsustainable. They're going to annihilate us. And then they, then yeah. they surrendered. Yeah. And for us to have boots on the ground with 80-pound backpacks knocking on doors looking for the bad guy, it's ridiculous. Well, it you mean in Afghanistan? Yeah, and all of that Middle East stuff. Right. Well, they weren't, but here's the problem. Afghanistan, they didn't really even go into into houses. They ran off into the caves, right? Right. So let's bomb the hell out of the cages. The caves. Cave. Yeah. Uh, well, I think they remember they were working on the bunker buster bombs and all of that stuff, the really big bombs in order to blow up caves and such. But I think that's kind of the benefit of knowing the caves and having these caves in those mountains was that like they knew where they were and they were really like kind of impenetrable. Right. Like some of the caves and they were yeah, hidden. And- so we were at a loss. So the bottom line to my comment is fairness. you got to be fair. 
and the problem is the loss of innocent collateral damage. So what is, when you say you've got to be fair, what does that mean? It means uh, don't carpet bomb my town. Don't carpet bomb your town. Yeah, don't don't carpet bomb and kill innocent collateral people. Right. What if they do that? But if they do that to us, then we can do that to them. Is that fair? They could give to. They they don't care about how many of us they kill. Right, an innocent. Right, that's there was a guy named Caleb Carr. He was a war historian. He wrote a book after nine eleven about why terrorism fails, and he talks about you know targeting civilian populations in order to get them to change the political direction of their nation and their you know foreign policy or whatever uh, whatever those aims are that the terrorists are trying to achieve. And he says why that's uh, self defeating in the long run. But they haven't learned that lesson, and they continue to yeah target civilians, target innocent people, and so. What, so what do you do then? So when you say it's fair, we shouldn't kill their innocent people, but if they kill our innocent people, or like in the case of Afghanistan, right, they harbored terrorists to let them come and kill innocent people. So we exactly. should what? Yeah. So then what? So we should we, we should respond in kind and kill innocent people there? And look, Germany surrendered and Japan surrendered. Mm-hmm. And the wars were over. Mm-hmm. But I don't see any in the Middle East, any of those countries surrendering. No, I yeah, I, I'm not I'm not sure every country in the Middle East, but a lot of them were, you know, put together after, you know, world wars and were put together by other countries, the borders drawn by people that, you know, were not from there. And so what are we what we consider to be countries, like do they even do that, you know, should they be countries <laughs> like some, some of these places? I, you know, and I don't know the answers here. I'm just I'm just asking these questions. But um, sure. yeah, so I don't know, like, does the Taliban ever feel like should was there ever a point where they were going to surrender when they could just hide in caves and then wait us out knowing we would leave? And if that was always going to be the case, then why wouldn't we have just like gone in, overthrown the Taliban, killed the people we needed to kill and then and then pull out and go home? And that was it. But. I suspect the reason why we didn't do that, I remember the reason why we didn't kind of do that, was because we wanted more. Like, we wanted bin Laden, and he escaped, and we wanted the Mullah Omar, and we wanted people to pay for what they had done on 9-11, right? Agreed. Yeah. All right, Joe, I appreciate the call, sir. And here's the other thing. We're asking the Taliban right now, you know, please, please don't uh, blow up our embassy and, and, you know, let us get out. You know, we'll, we'll turn it all over to you, we swear. But please... Let us just pull all of our troops out and pull all of our people out. Maybe leave the embassy, but if you don't leave the embassy, just let us get out. What if they don't? What if they don't? What if they say no? What if we have, we, we're now sending thousands of troops from Fort Bragg. They're heading over there uh, to help, you know, get people out. And uh, what if we've got a bunch of people, let's say 5,000 people that are there. And let's say the Taliban goes in and slaughters all of them. Then what? Like, I'm genuinely interested. Like, do we ha- would there be a response to that? Seven zero four five seven zero eleven ten one eight hundred WBT eleven ten. Was the cost worth it in Afghanistan? Approaching the twentieth anniversary of nine eleven, 
We're pulling out very quickly, running away, it seems like. And um, the Taliban is ripping through Afghanistan, conquering all of these cities and capitals. I've seen video of a person dancing very poorly in one governor's office. Um, I mean, it was. It was just a poor whatever it was. I don't know if it was like a traditional Afghan dance. I'm not trying to be culturally insensitive. But like he just he was not performing it very well is all. And I understand why it was difficult. He's wearing the boots. He's got fatigues on. He's got, you know, mounds of rubble, a bunch of dead bodies he's dancing on. And so it's very difficult to keep your footing in that kind of situation. So was it worth it? Was all of that worth it? April, welcome to the show. How are you, April? Hi, Pete. I'm doing fine. Good. Um, I just wanted to comment the the last caller that you had on. Okay. Um, apparently he was an Obama voter and did not study much history <laughs> because had we not bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki, yeah. who knows how much longer World War II could have dragged on. And they had given statistics. Yeah. If that had not happened, to how many more people would have died besides the people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki? It is unfortunate there is always collateral damage in war. I thought, see, now, there's it, some things about war that we can't always specifically say it's always this way because it's different everywhere you go. Should we have been in Afghanistan? Probably not. We're never going to fix it. Right. But I think we know that now. And I think there were people who were saying, no, we shouldn't be there back then. I remember I had arguments with people back then about this. But at the time, it was, hey, we got attacked, and the people that did it were being given safe harbor in Afghanistan. And so yeah. turn them over. They refused. Okay, well, you know, let's go after them then. And I think everybody understood that that was the mission, but then it became this, well, hey, we didn't find them right away. They ran off into these caves, and what do we do now? And um, that then turned into the nation-building thing. And uh, lesson learned. Let's never do that again. But uh, also, I thought that the previous caller, Joe was his name. I thought he was going somewhere else with the Nagasaki uh, Hiroshima thing. I thought he was I thought he was first making the argument that we should that we should bomb like all of Afghanistan. Like I thought he was going to go that direction with that. And then he kind of it seemed like he shifted somewhere. So I, don't, I wasn't really clear on where he went after that. You know, you look at all the different wars we've been in. And the ones where we decide to go back in and put the country back together and make it like our country, mm -hmm. it never works. Well, what about World War II? That was sort of the example that people were, uh, I think, hoping for, right, with the Marshall Plan that we would go in and rebuild the society and get them back on their feet, you know, kind of deal. Like, And I think people were very optimistic, and maybe it was naive. But there was this yeah. idea, and I remember, I forget who it was, though, but I remember somebody saying, like, People keep trying uh, uh, to force this model onto this society, this other society, and and it's based on this idea that they're just like us, and they're not like us. And that's what people are refusing to accept, is that they are not like us. That society is not like our society. No, and it's, there are certain countries that's never going to be. And I agree with you. When we went in after the World Wars, not just American, mostly mm -hmm. British and France, but to go and take these countries in the Middle East and redraw the lines, mm -hmm. okay? I mean, like, they're still having problems because of that. Right. Yeah. We, we just don't know when to keep our nose out of it. Yeah. Culturally, other people's businesses. 
Now, and, now we, we were more closely with the Marshall Plan. We were more closely related to what Europe was true, already. True. And I, but I think we're right. never going to be culturally related to a country that still doesn't. Yeah, I mean, they were piling up televisions. Yeah, they were piling televisions in the town square and burning them. That's definitely not anything that Americans can relate to. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right, right, April, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Um, Yeah, and I think that was sort of the hubris, maybe, or maybe we were naive to think that we could, you know, show them this is a better way to govern yourself and to give equal rights to people. And, like, honestly, like, if you look at one of the biggest problems that the Middle East has is that half of their population is essentially out of the workforce. They're, like, not even full members of society. It's women, right? You you got half of your population that is not allowed to do really much of anything. And so what does that mean for productivity? It's restrained. It's constrained. Jimmy, welcome to the show. Hello, Jimmy. How are you? Hey, all right. I guess I'm going to ask, so what if 9-11 happens again? 9-11... Part two hmm. happens again, and but you know the country is much different now than it was year, you know a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're gonna have a very divided. Oh, it's our fault to let we want to kill them again. <laughs> I do wonder. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I, I do wonder so if something like that does happen at that scale of that magnitude again, and Joe Biden is president. What are the politics of that? Because I am I am pretty sure what would happen if Donald Trump was still president and something like that happened. I, I am pretty sure that we would not see the same response by the American people than if Joe Biden was president and it happened. I think there would be I think that people if Joe Biden after another 9-11 type of event, if he said we have to go into this country, they're harboring terrorists, let's go. I think Americans would rally around that. I think if Donald Trump did that, I don't think Americans would rally around it. Half the country wouldn't. I suspect. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It just seems like it's a scary proposition. If it happens again, you know, what are the ramifications politically? Will you know? Will you get more of the people in the middle or on the fringe or on mm-hmm. one side? You know, hard, go hard to the other. And so they all Republicans again, or were they just like, oh, we can't do this, and we're going to go hard to the left. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Do the soccer moms turn into security moms again? Does that happen? Or uh, And look, you know, we, we are also at a point in time, and Jimmy, thank you for the call. We are at a point in time now where we have had 20 years in Afghanistan to see that. And so does that prompt a different decision? Do we say, you know what, because um, I, I, I doubt it would come from Afghanistan again, but if it did... Then what? Like, do you start having people start talking about a a higher level of force without ground troops and what that might mean? There's a fellow named Ed West, and he writes at a website called Unheard. U-N-H-E-R-D, unheard.com. And he had a piece the other day, America has become its own worst enemy, comparing us to the Soviet Union when it circled the drain. He said one of the biggest mistakes made by Gorbachev at the time 
was to raise the tax on vodka. He raised the tax on vodka because the Russians were drinking themselves to death. There's a joke. There was a joke. I guess it still is a joke. Stand by with the rim shot. Um, that a boy asks his father, Papa, uh, now with the tax increase, does this mean you shall drink less? And Papa replies, no, son, this means that you shall eat less. Yeah, Russian humor, it's, it's never been top-notch. But that was the saying, that was the joke. Alcohol played a central role, he says, in the, demo, uh, the demographic collapse that preempted the political fall of the Soviet Union. It was back in the 70s that people first noticed that in the Soviet Union, people were actually starting to die younger. The decline in life expectancy affected not only the old, but also the middle-aged. There was no famine. There was no foreign invasion. There was no natural disaster. People were drinking themselves to death out of despair. A country in which life is getting shorter and worse for its citizens has no future. Russia's birth rate had collapsed long ago. Um, Two things uh, that drive higher fertility in wealthy countries is religion and affordability. And all of the major religions promote childbearing, giving prestige and status to women who have children. By the way, this is one of the other things. Men don't protect women because they're weaker. Men protect women because they're more important. Right? They're more important. Um, On top of that, attending a church, mosque, or synagogue is associated with a number of measures of well-being which breed optimism about the future. So that's the first thing, is, the, is uh, religion. The second factor is money. If both partners in a couple have to work in order to survive, then fertility is actually going to be lowered. It, it is going to be depressed. The Soviet Union had extensive daycare provisions for mothers, but it was nowhere near enough to make up for the shortfall caused by mediocre wages. He says liberalism now is facing challenges in the, uh, the 20th century, 21st century, and from rival ideas within the democratic tradition. Starting in the 1960s, a new way of thinking began to predominate in the U.S. that was not really liberal, although its opponents confusingly still refer to it as that. This new way of thinking was more hostile to freedom of speech, and its adherents began the process of chasing deviant thinkers out of academia. And that began in the late 60s, and it would massively reduce political diversity by the 21st century. It supported not just personal sexual freedom, as did liberalism, but radical ideas about sex, including hostility to the family. It was anti-religion, and it would become more so when religion clashed with those sexual rights. As for freedom of association, the master freedom in Christopher Caldwell's words, this was also incompatible with a worldview that prioritized equality over liberty. Right? This new way of thinking, progressivism is probably the fairest term, is a far less tolerant way of thinking than liberalism in its hostility to freedom of speech its suspicion that its opponents are fascists and the belief that politics should be inserted into everything from science to children's books right it's actually closer to totalitarian tradition american progressivism is not communism any more than its opponents are nazis the market is perfectly capable of achieving most progressive goals I'm going to say that part again. The market is perfectly capable of achieving most progressives' goals. 
And that is true. And this is something I have argued with people on the left for years, which is we may have the same goal in mind. Like I want everybody right, to be able to have the things they need to survive. I want people to have a roof over their head. I want them to be successful. I want them to be able to go out to eat, to have disposable income, right? But my view is that the free market system, that capitalism, is the way that you get that to occur. It's not through government interventions in the marketplace. And in fact, the more government intervenes in the marketplace and makes these decisions for people and reallocates assets and wealth and such and spends us into oblivion, then the worse off the population is, you're actually doing more harm towards that goal that we supposedly both share. He says globalization came with a price with millions of jobs lost after the 2001 trade deal with China made two months before George W. Bush had followed the Soviet example by invading Afghanistan. It was in those former industrial heartlands where people first began to notice an epidemic of drug-related deaths that now constitutes one of the greatest social disasters in history. Four decades on from its superpower rival, the U.S. has now become a country in which people were dying younger, driven by overdoses and suicides. So instead of alcohol, it's opioids for us. The ethnic spoil system, he says, benefited the party in the Soviet Union and minority members within it especially, but it is also a zero-sum game. The benefits of diversity, like the benefits of liberalism and capitalism, are supposed to be a non-zero-sum. Right? That's the benefit of, of liberalism and capitalism. Migrants benefit from moving to a richer or a safer country. But the host population gains also from their skills or from their, you know, cultural niches. When you my uh, when, when your migrant neighbor gets rich and even richer than you, it doesn't harm you. It also actually benefits you, right? If they're doing so legally, obviously. Equity is a similarly zero-sum game. Somebody has to lose, though, right? If one group is celebrated or raised up, then in some cases, even, you know, sacralized, then others have to suffer. That's, that's part of what equity is. Whether the tangible matters like college places or simply status and prestige doesn't matter. Today, America's thought leaders are obsessed with white nationalism, and they're like regularly denouncing white supremacy as this lethal danger to the nation in what is probably history's least ever white supremacist country. <laughs> right? We, we are. We are. This is what Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson talks about, right? Communists saw their political beliefs as so all-encompassing that even science was political. In the Soviet Union, science was politicized. If it contradicted the goals of communism, then it wasn't science. In today's America, the slow death of liberalism has resulted in the blatant politicization of science to the extent that, as in Russia, scientists teach things which are obviously untrue because it supports the prevailing ideology. And then there's the media, much of which parrots the party line with like almost embarrassing comrade Stalin has driven pig iron to record production levels. You know, like that's that's the conformity level we're seeing in a lot of media now. America, once the most trusting of societies, is heading in the direction of Russia, one of the least trusting. Most disturbing of all is that formerly the most 
demographically vibrant of Western countries, today the U.S. has suffered a spectacular collapse in fertility. This is mostly down to stagnant wages among the middle class who can no longer afford a family with one breadwinner and a rapid decline of religious faith. But maybe people have also lost belief in themselves and the ideals of their country. The Soviet Union broke into 15 pieces. Today, U.S., people talk of secession, right? Escaping a crumbling superpower ruled by geriatrics that consider themselves to be our elites. Again, that's Ed West at a website called Unheard. That's, I gave you just some highlights. It's a very lengthy piece. It's well worth the read. It's called America Has Become Its Own Worst Enemy. Up next, after the news, we are going to talk with the Speaker of the North Carolina House, Tim Moore. So stick around for that on News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. News Talk 1110, 99.3 WBT. Pete Callender here, and joining me now is the Speaker of the North Carolina House of Representatives, Representative Tim Moore. How are you, sir? Welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. It's good to be with you today. How are you? I am doing well. You sound like you're driving, so be safe. Um, <laughs> if, uh, I don't know. Did y'all pass no, a law sorry. yet on the uh, on the drive? I know there was some cell phone uh, laws that were up what uh, or a couple months ago. <laughs> Well, I'm actually sitting still. So okay. We are good to go. <laughs> okay. All right. Good to know. Um, so the House passed its budget. Um, it's different than the Senate. I always want to point that out because you guys still have to go to conference. But um, you, you made a, a lengthy speech in defense of the budget. One of the questions that I had, though, in listening to your comments from the from the floor the other day, there were uh, policy. Uh, 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 ideas that are in the budget, right? And the Democrats were kind of hammering away at some of these, like the fix of the Emergency Management Act, which I support. I think it should be done. Why put those items into the budget with, you know, a spending bill? Is that is that normal? Uh, what would be your response to the Democrats, you know, complaining about that? Well, it's, it's very normal to include uh, – policy uh, provisions that are part of a an appropriations package in the budget it is something that we have routinely done it's something that is there and you know when it comes to spending money in a budget that in and of itself is in fact policy too because you're making policy choices on where to invest and where to cut taxes yeah and that's fair the yeah it is a policy document D- does this do you think, though, that it, it serves as an inducement for Democrats? It gives them a reason to vote no? Well, I, listen, if anybody votes against this budget, they're having to try to find a reason to vote against it. Because this, if you look at what we did in this budget, we invested a record amount of money into capital and infrastructure. One of the complaints that I've always heard from folks is, you know, government needs to maintain the roads, the bridges, the high, uh, the highways, its facilities. And what we've seen for, frankly, decades is just neglect and failure to do that. And so with a lot of this one-time money that we received, we have, we have chosen to invest that into, uh, into these one-time capital expenditures. Now, those on the left would rather take that money and create, you know, all sorts of various new entitlement programs. They would want to take one-time money 
and create programs that are going to have to be funded for many, many years to come. And that's just not something that, that we're going to do. And if you really look at uh, where a lot of the differences are between what the Democrats talked about and Republicans, that came down as one of the key issues. Uh, the other matter, the other uh, item that was uh, that was also talked about was the Democrats complained about the fact that we were reducing taxes uh, and, and that we weren't just throwing, spending even more money, I mean, and that was basically their criticism. But yeah. I mean, we're spending roughly nine billion dollars. That's with a B. Nine billion dollars on capital and infrastructure. And we're doing it and also get paying down debt the state has, lowering taxes, and then putting a lot of the other surplus money into uh, increasing uh, salaries and benefits for our hardworking uh, state employees and teachers. So it's, for somebody to vote against this, they've really just got to be uh, – uh, wanting to vote against it. That's about it. Well, I, and I think in your comments on the floor, you asked your Democratic colleagues, like, what is enough? When, like, what is enough spending? You keep saying you want more spending, and you ask what is enough. And I have the answer for you if you want. The answer is, is more. That's the answer to your right. question. It's always more. Or uh, you can also answer it, uh, put Democrats in charge. Then I think they'd be okay yeah. with whatever level of spending they come up with. I think those are the answers. Uh, you're you're 100% correct. Yeah. So the um, also, I know you mentioned this in in your comments. Explain what the SCIF is. So the SCIF is what's called the State Capital Infrastructure Fund, and what the SCIF does is that is a way that we can uh, put money aside each year to be dedicated toward uh, going toward capital needs throughout the state. And, and we do it in such a way that we're also retiring debt. Now, I've always been a proponent of appropriate bonds and, and issuing issuance of bonds. But the way that this budget ba- uh, that operates, and we've done for the last couple of years, is a, is a new plan where and it, and it's no different than this in your household. If you go out and you, you buy something and you pay for it, you're done. Mm-hmm. But let's say you have something, you, let's say you need to repair, replace your roof and you don't have six thousand dollars sitting around you're going to go maybe borrow money and do that you had to pay interest on it but if you had the six thousand dollars sitting there you'd rather pay for it up front because you don't have to pay interest well it's no different with the state uh what we've done is set up a plan where instead of going and borrowing money and then having to pay a lot of money toward interest payments we're working toward a process where we're having a dedicated um dedicated source of funds coming in that go directly to paying for projects so that we don't have any debt. And that that's what we're doing, and we are gradually paying down debt, but at the same time getting more money out in projects. So it's actually working really well. So is, is, this, is it a similar concept to like a state infrastructure bank? It, that, that's, that's exactly what it okay. basically is. Uh, but, we, but what we've done is we have really dedicated, uh, we have mandated set-aside funds to go to it, which, is, which is, requires a lot of discipline. We've done it. And then the other thing we've done is we've taken a lot of these federal funds that have come down and used those in it as well. And, and I want to be I want to make sure that you and your view uh, your listeners know this. I think that the amount of money that has been spent in Washington is absolutely obscene. Uh, it is ridiculous that this amount of money that this phony money is being printed to this point that we're leveraging our kids and our grandkids' future. I mean, this the, the national debt is, is an absolute travesty. Uh, but, you know, those funds have been sent here, 
And if we don't spend them, then guess what? Some legislators in New York or New Jersey or Illinois, those, those funds will go to them. So what I committed to do was to make sure that whatever funds we get here, uh, that we spend them wisely and appropriately and that we don't tie the state down to any future obligations or entitlement programs with it. Yeah. Um, you heard Representative Galliard's comments. Um, I've got them. Do you want to uh, – I, I can play them for you, and you can listen to them again and respond to them if you would like. I was just kind of curious. Like, I've never heard anybody make comments like this. Well, I will play them for folks who haven't heard the comments you, yet. You, you know what? I think your listeners ought to hear those comments. They're pre- and then okay. I'll, 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 you know what? I want them to take the reaction to, to such ridiculous comments themselves, and then I'll comment. After. Okay. This budget reminds me of an abusive husband. All of this good stuff that's in the budget. All this good stuff. What about the husband who provides for his family, pays all the bills, but he beats his wife and molests his children? No one would call that man a good man. This is not a good budget just because it pays bills. It is abusive and neglectful to the most vulnerable citizens in our state. All right. That's uh, Representative Galliard from, uh, is it Greensboro? Uh, no, he no, he's from uh, uh, ever near uh, kind of Rocky Mount. Okay, uh, I believe, but I've uh, never heard anything yeah, like so, that. No, I you know I, I've been in the legislature eighteen years, and there, and and I can't think of any more ignorant comments that I've ever heard. Uh, just absolutely uh, you know, offensive to to folks who have been victims of domestic violence, uh, to to folks who have had to deal with you know, deadbeat dads, whatever it is, yeah. right? I mean, for, for this legislator to, to try to be you know, coy or, or, or you know, somehow cute to try to compare a state budget to something like, like domestic violence, it, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. He, uh, he certainly, he, I think he owes the, uh, House, the House of Representatives an apology. He frankly owes the people of this state an apology. Uh, he embarrassed himself in making such comments. Uh, and I'm sure that when he runs for re-election, his voters will uh, will get to hear that, and they probably can respond appropriately. But yeah, that's just uh, unbelievable. But you know, I guess it shows uh, uh, the mentality of some on the left, even to even try to draw that comparison. But you know, his was not his was probably the most egregious and over the top, over the top comments. But there were some equally uh, uh, e- equaling other moments of just you know you just like what I would say cringeworthy moments that. But I think it showed desperation and an inability to to effectively argue a bill on its merit. Well, and also I wonder that uh, to uh, Representative Hurley's comments uh, that she made, you know, she was the Education Committee right chair, I believe, or one of the co-chairs. And she said nobody came to her with any uh, with any proposals or any asks. And that's what she used to do when she was in the minority. She would ask the majority party to help her run some bills. And nobody did that with her. And is that was that the similar is that a similar pattern that Democrats didn't even ask to get some stuff in the budget? That that is that is true. But I'm going to tell you this: there were Democratic members who came to me and and told me they needed help with projects that were funded in that budget. Uh, most of those voted for the budget, but a couple didn't. Mm. And you know, it, it's but but they but members all members have had an opportunity to weigh in on this. We've been working on this budget practically since we came in in January. 
And so all members were invited to you know, submit your funding request, come through the process. You know, we've had committee we've had committee meetings directly on point going on for now, what almost two months on this issue. Uh, they could members are allowed to submit amendments. They're allowed to submit proposals, and and, all, and in all candor, you had a lot of members there uh, who were speaking against this, who did not lift a finger to do anything on this budget. They didn't lift a finger to do anything for the folks in their district, and then they had the gall to stand up on the house floor and make comments like that. Absolutely shameful. But you know what? Stories like, you know, coverage like this, more stories are exposing that. And at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. Some people, it's like in business or anything. There's something you just can't make happy, right? But the, fortunately, we had enough members, Republicans and Democrats, who voted that we have enough to override a veto if there is one. Uh, so that, so that's the real, uh, that's the real uh, takeaway from it, that you had, you had nine Democrats who didn't stick just with their party talking points. They crossed over. They realized what a good budget this was, and they voted with us uh, on this package. And as a result, it is, uh, it, it, is, it is on a great trajectory to seeing it become law because it's, it's really great stuff. And I can tell you, for our region, you know, in, in, in the Charlotte metro area, there's a lot of investments that, that are being made. There's more money for uh, transportation. You know, a lot of us get tired of sitting in traffic in our area. There's going to be more to help that. Uh, it's, you know, we, we've put more money, for example, into prosecutors. I know that's been a request of mm-hmm. uh, folks in Mecklenburg County. So a lot of great projects. And, I mean, it's just it's a lot to be proud of. And so I'm just real thankful that, we, that we've gotten the strong vote that we did have. And, you know, for those that just want to, you know, stand back and throw rocks, that's fine. But uh, uh, they're, they're, they're unfortunately missing out on a lot of the great things that are happening in this state. Speaker of the House, Tim Moore, thank you very much for your time. We were, I know we were going to talk about the riot bill as well, but I will invite you to come back and do so. Uh, and the door is open if you want to hang out in studio for an hour as well sometime. Door is open as well for that. Thanks for your time, sir. I appreciate it. Glad to do it. Good to be on with you today. All right. Take care. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Thanks again to the Speaker of the House for joining us. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, that was James Galliard, state representative, making those comments on the floor of the House, equating the budget to a child molester, wife abuser. <laughs> it's just... Galliard is just... He's just garbage. I'm sorry. He's just a garbage kind of guy. And I don't say that about very many people. I'm, I'm, I try not to be nasty like that, but... I have watched him now for over a year make these kinds of comments from the floor of the house, and he's just disgusting. It's grotesque. So, um, and you could tell him I said that. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, he could just listen to the podcast and, and hear it for himself. All right, uh, I was going to get into so I got the, some of these census numbers I want to hit, um, and also some COVID-related things. So first off, uh, the COVID stuff. There was this study that was done. A large patient study, and this is a write-up at the L.A. Times, got a lot of uh, publicity the other day. I want to say, what is today, 13th, so two days ago. A columnist named Michael Hiltzik. Hiltzik. Hiltzik? I think that's how he pronounces it. Anyway, he writes that ivermectin, the latest supposed treatment for COVID-19 being touted by anti-vaccination groups, had, quote, 
no effect whatsoever on the disease, according to a large patient study. That's the conclusion of the TOGETHER trial, which has subjected several purported non-vaccine treatments for COVID-19 to carefully designed clinical testing. I love the use of the adjectives. Always look for the adjectives. When you want to know what a reporter thinks about a story, look at the adjectives, right? They use words like carefully designed. Like, why would you have, why would you put carefully designed? He's trying to, he's putting his thumb on the scale there, right? This was carefully designed. Like, oh, was it designed? Well, yes, very carefully. Like, well, I would assume that any kind of a large patient study, which again, large patient study, right? This is an appeal to authority, like, He's puffing up like, this is carefully designed clinical testing, so you know it's true. The trial is supervised by McMaster University in Hamilton, Canada, conducted in Brazil. One of the trial's principal investigators, Edward Mills, presented the results from the ivermectin arms of the study at a symposium a couple days ago, sponsored by the National Institutes of Health. Now, I bring this report to you and this study to you Uh, For a couple of reasons. Number one is look at how people react to this study. I think I mentioned this briefly yesterday, but how do people react to this study? Because my reaction to this headline, you know, ivermectin shows no effect as a COVID treatment. And to me, that was sad. I felt bad about that. Right. I was like, oh, that stinks. I thought this thing might show some uh, uh, some effect might help. But you got people that are spiking the ball, like, in your face, Trumpkin. Like, wait a minute. Do you, do you want there not to be treatments for COVID? <laughs> I would prefer there be treatments. Right now, I would prefer we hear some news from Mark Muller in the News Center. Pete Callender, News Talk 1110-993-WBT. So this big trial of ivermectin, 1,500 patients in the study, showed no effect whatsoever on the trial's outcome goals, whether patients required extended observation in the emergency room or hospitalization. They said no effect. Okay. Um, question I have after reading this piece, I cannot tell. Was it only ivermectin or did they put it with all these other drugs? They don't say. They don't say it like that because, as I understood it, ivermectin was part of a series of drugs, part of like a cocktail that you would put together uh, because it's not like a standalone treatment. You have to do other things with it, right? They don't say if they did that. Uh, The findings are not formally published or (laughs) peer-reviewed, which (laughs) there are a lot of people hanging their hat on that, but... I suspect it will get peer reviewed at some point. And I'm sure that if the peer reviewing goes badly, we'll all be treated to the same level of media coverage (laughs) that we're getting on this. The ivermectin camp. So says the journalist, uh, Michael Hiltzik. The ivermectin camp is heavily peopled by anti-vaccination advocates and conspiracy mongers. Really? Again, like, do you want this to work or not? Do you want there to be a treatment? Wouldn't it be great if there was a treatment aside from the vaccine? Again, I got the vaccine 
for all the good apparently it's doing. Like, I got the shots. I got two of them. I got, I thought the Pfizer, which was like the better of the shots. And now it turns out, well, that might not be the better of the shots or whatever. But wouldn't it be fantastic if there was some sort of prophylactics or something you could take, like some sort of therapeutics you could take that would stop this from happening, right? I don't know. What do I know? I'm just a radio guy. All right, let me go over here. I wonder, is Lynn, are you still on the line? Lynn, are you still on the line? I am. Oh I've been gosh. on here listening to you for the past couple hours. I, Lynn, <laughs> what, you have held on for two and a half hours. That's okay. I've just been listening to you online, you know, just on my phone, so that's okay. okay. Well, all right. Well, I'm sorry, Like I, but I didn't. Okay, so you wanted to talk about COVID vaccines, and I wasn't getting, and I had a lot of other stuff to get to, so I apologize for making you late. That's right. That's right. I understood. That's fine. All right, so what's your comment now? Okay, um, one thing, you just mentioned ivermectin. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine had COVID and did not start improving until they used ivermectin. Um. And why, so why does the media and the government not want us to use something that helps? I mean, they were feeling horrible. Mm-hmm. And once they started using ivermectin, they started getting their energy back. Was it, was it only that drug or did they take other stuff too? Let me tell you. Well, you know, they were taking, uh, most, they were mostly self-treating. They were taking uh, Benadryl. Mm-hmm. They were taking, um, I can't think of everything right now. Um, Because there's like a cocktail. Yeah, there's like a protocol. The Zelensky or Zelenko protocol, right? It's got zinc and it's got vitamin D and it's got ivermectin, I think, was the other one. There were a couple of of these drugs that they kind of pair together in the treatment protocol. And that's why I was asking. Well, um, you know, they were on zinc anyway. And, okay. you know, some vitamin D and, and different vitamins, mm-hmm. trying not to get um, the COVID. Mm-hmm. But they got it anyway. They continued the, vi- continued the vitamins. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, then they started, you know, they were having trouble breathing, so they started Benadryl. They were told to do that. Um, they were, uh, they started, um, uh, they had an inhaler because uh, they had, an, you know, mm-hmm. uh, asthma. So they started the inhaler because they were having starting to feel tight in their chest. They started using um, uh, another breathing machine, a nebulizer. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, but they were still not having any energy at all. They just felt horrible. Mm-hmm. And when they started taking the ivermectin, they started turning around. It okay. was pure ivermectin that started them turning around. Now, the other things helped, too. Because when they started feeling the tightness in the chest, when they would take a Benadryl, it would help. Mm-hmm. But as far as getting energy back and really getting on the road, they felt like to recovery. Mm-hmm. The ivermectin did that. Okay. Yeah. So I yeah. And this study that's what I, that's what I mean. I I don't know what all they're studying. I'm looking at this report from the L.A. Times, and it's obvious that the author holds people who believe ivermectin can help. Um, or are at least open to this idea. It's obvious he he, he holds them in disdain and uh, and contempt. And oh, wait a minute, it kills them instantly. Is that what you said? I'm sorry. No, no. I said that this guy um, who's writing the piece on ivermectin he holds people who uh, you know who are hopeful of ivermectin and supportive of ivermectin. He he holds them in contempt and disdain. 
Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. 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 So that's what. So, and I point this out only, and I appreciate the call in. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend. Um, I, I hold. I, I bring this to you because it's important to watch how people respond to these types of studies, these types of um, uh, this type of research. Because I don't want to be a person that celebrates bad news for all humankind. Right? Like that to me <laughs> would be. Uh, I don't know, black mark, I think, right? Don't you think, like, you should not be celebrating the fact that this drug that people were hoping could help doesn't help as many people as we may have thought it did or may have hoped it did. And now you're like, ha, 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 in your face, knuckle-dragger, this doesn't help anybody. I just, I don't want to be that guy, but apparently this guy is that guy. So just watch how people respond to this kind of news. Also, I would point out, like I said, that... um. The scientific uh, scientific trials that have been cited by ivermectin advocates, he says, have been too small or poorly documented. And the researchers say that the trial had to be altered. This is like the very last paragraph had to be altered after advocacy groups complained that it was too modest to achieve the results they expected because the trial originally tested the results from a single ivermectin dose in January. One dose. That's what they were. That was the original research then they said okay fine we'll do one dose for three days and and that's it (laughs) so it's like wait a minute is that really enough to know half the subjects got a placebo no clinical results were detected at either dosage That's the Rolling Stones. Pete Callender here, News Talk 1110-993-WBT. All right, before the end of the show here, before I get out of here for the weekend, happy Friday. Census 2020. I don't understand. There's a little bit of, I think it's a little, it's a little much. The bragging that wake county is doing have you heard this have you seen this the headlines and the reporting on this it's like wake county is now the top dog wake county now has more people than any other county in the state like yeah so like big deal they 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 now have um to do, 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 do 1.129 million people 1 million 129,000 people right 1.1 million people. They got ahead of Mecklenburg by just under 14,000 people. That's it. That's it. 14,000. Oh, and by the way, the city of Charlotte, the city of Charlotte has 874,000 people in it. 874,000, 875 almost. Raleigh has 467. <laughs> We're almost twice the size of Raleigh. But we're supposed to we're supposed to be impressed that Wake County has all of this all of this uh, these extra people. Look at us, we're so much bigger. Yeah, but the city of Charlotte. By the way, do you know the when they do the apportionments for the redistricting? So, like all of our congressional districts have to have the same amount of people right in the district. And I think last time when they did it, the number was roughly. 
There's about three quarters of a million people per district. So every district in North Carolina had somewhere in the neighborhood of like 750,000 people. I forget what the exact number is, but it was like 750. So now we're going to be divided among 14 districts, right? We, we stole that seat from New York because Governor Cuomo killed all those people. We got extra, like literally like they missed it by like 90 people. And so we got the extra congressional seat from New York and, um, they're going to redo, redo all of the lines. Well, at 10 million plus people in the state, you divide it by 14, and you're somewhere around 800,000 people, 750, 800,000 people per district. So does that mean Charlotte gets its own seat? Should Charlotte have its own congressional district? Like just one district that's just Charlotte. No, of course not. That won't happen. (laughs) You know why that won't happen? Because then they can't spread the Democrats that are in Charlotte. They can't spread that out into other districts. They they want that. (laughs) Democrats are going to want those Democrats spread out into other districts. Um, But, I mean, you literally could make one congressional seat encompass the whole city of Charlotte. Raleigh came in at 467,000. Greensboro at 299. Durham, 283. These are the top most populated cities now. Charlotte, Raleigh, then Greensboro, then Durham, then Winston-Salem, because Durham um, surpassed Winston-Salem. They're now number four. Then Fayetteville at 208. Then Cary, the containment area for relocated Yankees, as it is known, C-A-R-Y, 175,000 people or so. Then Wilmington at 115,000. Then High Point at 114. And then give it up, y'all, for Concord. Concord knocking off Greenville and Asheville. Concord grew 33%. That's pretty amazing. Concord uh, now top 10 in the state. The, the 10th largest city in in the state. Little old Concord. I, I knew it when. <clears throat> what else do we got here? Um, do, 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 do. This is all from the census. More than half of the state's 100 counties, 51 counties out of our 100, lost population. 51 of our 100 counties lost population, even as our population grew by 9% over the last decade. So now we're at 10.4 million people in the state. And more than one in five North Carolinians, one in five, live either in Wake County or Mecklenburg County. Isn't that amazing? One out of five live in Mecklenburg or Wake, and half of the state's population live in 12 counties. Half of the so more than five million people live in just twelve counties in North Carolina. Robinson County is a loser. Robinson is the biggest loser, had the biggest population drop, lost nearly eighteen thousand residents. Three other uh, three other counties: Duplin, uh, Edgecombe, and Columbus. They all uh, fell by about seven thousand. And do has the. Um, Oh, yeah, here's the, uh, the racial population. More than 60% of the state's population is white, 20% black. That is the second largest group in North Carolina. Um, Hispanic 
or Latino people make up 11%. White people are the most prevalent race in 91 of the 100 counties. Black people make up the largest share in eight counties, which are all along sort of the the Virginia border up there. Um, Native Americans are the most prevalent group in Robeson County. That's the Lumbee, I believe. That would be due to the Lumbee population. So there's the uh, the latest census numbers. There was another one here I had. Oh, yeah, here it is. Um, Spencer Mountain in Gaston County. Apparently, but it is, just doesn't exist anymore. It's the only thing I can decipher from looking at this stat, which is it had 37 residents, and now it has none. <laughs> so either uh, either they got annexed, or like all 37 people moved out of town and there's nothing left. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what Spencer mountain is or was, but others uh, that lost 50% or more of their population include a place called Kittrell in Franklin County, a place called Delview in Gaston County as well. That's pretty amazing. Two of these, these biggest losing um, cities are in Gaston County. But Gaston County is also, like, growing very, very rapidly. I'm surprised Gaston County is not one of the top counties um, for growth. Maybe it is. Um, But I don't see it in any of the data. I mean, it's a lot of data, so I I could be wrong on that. But then there's also Falkland, and make sure you pronounce that correctly on the radio, uh, in Pitt County and Seven Springs in Wayne County. They were all among the biggest losers. Biggest losers. Um, Cottrell, Delview, Falkville, Lasker, Hassel, Princeville. Oh, Princeville lost a bunch, too. That's interesting. Calypso, Leggett, and Cerro Gordo. I have never heard of any of these places except Princeville. I've heard of Princeville. That's where Erica Smith is from. She's running for U.S. Senate and as a Democratic candidate. That is a wrap for the show. Thanks so much for listening. I do appreciate it. Brett Winterbull coming up next on News Talk 1110-993-WBT. We'll see you on Monday. Have a great weekend, and uh, don't break anything while I'm gone.